The purpose of the book of Ruth is for God to show his people that he wants to connect their lives to a story that is greater than their own. There's many, many stories in the Bible. Ruth is one, and there are many others. There's the story of Moses and Abraham and all the patriarchs, and there's Joseph and Daniel and his friends, and you know all the stories, Old Testament and New Testament, and we often see them as individual stories, and in their own right they are. But what they are are stories inside of a story. And they're what I call micro-stories that are underneath or subheaded under a macro-story. The big literature term for that is meta-narrative, which means the big story. Alistair McGrath says it's the story of a larger kind. Um, And I say that to not impress you with some sort of knowledge, but because I think that we often, in fact, let me say candidly, too often only see our micro-stories as the main thing in life. Um, We don't really see, and why we concentrated a little bit tonight on providence, is we don't see that our lives are part of a macro-story, the story of God's redemption. And I think Ruth and her story is a great example of that. Surely there are others in Scripture. But the big story or the macro-story is what I would call a life-explaining story. If you're not living your little micro story as part of the macro story of God every day, you won't be able to properly answer the big questions of life, like what is my purpose, where should I be, what does God want me to do with my life? And one of the things when I used to be a youth pastor and I taught or preached to teenagers, I often would say something to the effect that too many young people today have their own story And because they're Christians, they invite God into it. But the reality of Scripture is is that God has a story, and when you become a Christian, He invites you into His. Um, Too often, when young people, and and listen, adults do it on their own levels as well, they're deciding when they graduate high school, where should I go to college? What should be my major? What career should I pursue? Where's my job? And as a result of that, where am I going to live? And what am I going to, house am I going to buy? And, and on and on it goes. But in my conversations with people who are at that stage in their life and at times beyond, what I found to be too often to be true is that they are seeking to do pretty much what they want to do. And because they have a conscience, they don't want to leave God totally out of it. So they talk about praying about it or seeking God's will about it, but they're really writing their own story and they're trying to ask God to come into it. They're leaving him somewhat, I would say, on the margins or the periphery. They haven't excluded him because that wouldn't be very Christian, would it? But they want to have him in there. But in the end, the final decisions are all made on basis on at times completely on finances or scholarships or whatever the case might be. Not because any of those things are inherently evil or wrong. In fact, some of them are very good and very hard work for. So we wouldn't want to downplay the significance or the goodness of any of those things. But by the contrary, if you know the story of God, you'll find that what is normal for man isn't very normal for God. And often God does the countercultural thing or the thing that's the opposite of what you might think is true And so I I would tell you tonight that we would want to, as a church, and I hope you as individuals, would think very clearly tonight about this question. Whose story are you really living in? Ruth's story is about 
a couple of women who found that living in their own story wasn't what it was cracked up to be, and they gave their lives to be living in God's story. Now listen, you don't have to look around our culture very far to realize that whether you're saved or not saved, people crave to be in a bigger story, a story that perhaps is more exciting than their own. All you have to watch is or read books or movies like Lord of the Rings, Star Wars, the Marvel superheroes, and on and on it goes. And why are those movies so incredibly popular? Because people would say, I wish I had a story like that. I wish I was a superhero. I wish I had powers. I wish my life was exciting. I wish I could vanquish all my enemies. I wish I could come out on top. I wish that everybody thought so well of me. And, and you have these stories going on, and people flock, literally, the new Spider-Man movie by the millions to see it. Well, it is entertaining. There's no doubt about that. But the reason is, is that we crave a better story to live in. And because stories are what we use as an attempt to explain the world in which we live. Now, here's the thing about the gospel story and the Ruth story. It's not the only story that's out there. There are alternative stories. Uh, uh, they are competitive meta-narratives that there are out there. There's the evolution one that doesn't have God in it at all. There's the secular humanist one. There's the materialism one. There is the religious one. There's all kinds of competing stories out there. And what the book of Ruth makes us really decide in is what is the macro story that our micro story fits into. Now, if you look at the book of Ruth in the very beginning, there is the cultural story is pretty much laid out. And here's what it is. Chapter 1, verse 1, we've reviewed it. It's when the judges ruled. And there was no king, last verse of Judges, and there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in their own sight. That's the story that everybody lives in. And that is the very basic story in America 21st century. I mean, you fast forward all of these centuries and things haven't changed. I mean, there really isn't anyone that says absolute truth is right. There isn't king. There isn't final authority. God certainly isn't the one that everyone looks to for answers in life, right? And you have this thing where everyone does what is right in their own sight. I mean, you have it on every level, morally, sexually, biologically. Everyone is doing what they please. That's the day in which we live. And that is one story that's out there. And Unfortunately for Elimelech, Elimelech and his family, they decided that they would leave Israel and go to Moab and test that story for themselves. They thought they could find prosperity, provision, and security in another place and in another God, almost basically. But in that process of 10 years of living out the wrong story, um, they lost their lives. Elimelech died, his sons died, Naomi and Ruth and Orpah become widows. They are very poor. They even lose Orpah in the end of it. And by the time they come back empty, completely empty to Bethlehem, they have lived out for about a decade their own story, their own way. Chapter 2 through 4, which we'll finish tonight, is how they come back to Bethlehem. But more than geographical return, it's a spiritual return because they don't come back to Bethlehem only, they come back to God. And in doing so, I would say that Ruth and Naomi, Ruth for the first time, Naomi uh, for a long time, they come back and they submit their story to God's story. Now, each of those stories they choose to live in, the secular one and the sacred one, have a ripple effect. The ripple effect of living in the world story caused death and destruction and loss in God's, it's the reverse of that. But catch this, ready? But not immediately. 
there was very much difficulty. They were by their own, depressed, for Naomi was very bitter. She thought God had abandoned her, forsaken her, and they were without an heir, they were without a future, and things looked very dismal, and they were very poor. They didn't really literally know, and I know that we probably never have you know, experienced the fact they didn't know where their next meal was coming from, and that is a difficult place to, to be. And because, I want to tell you straight up, you live in God's story, it doesn't mean that everything will be hunky-dory. It doesn't mean that your life's going to be a bed of roses and everything will fall into place. That's certainly not what the Bible wants us to know. All you have to look at is Daniel and his three friends, Esther, and Nehemiah and Joseph and people who live in Babylon, whether it's Babylon, Persia, Egypt, living in two locations, one externally, you know, as the New Testament says, Paul was writing from Rome, but he was also in Rome, but in Christ. You, when you have those two combating locations, you're in Babylon, but you're in Jesus. It's a very difficult and tension-filled life, but that's the story that God calls us to. God calls us to a different kind of a life. Now, in the text, um, I want you to think of it this way. Secular stories, and so you know what to teach your kids, um, so you can raise, especially when your teenagers come of age. Um, let me put it to you this way. Secular stories, which if your kids go to public schools or you work in a secular job in that sense, um, there is, let me have you picture it as a two-story house. The world, by and large, lives in a one-story house. It is one level, and that is a level that sees everything only through a materialistic or a material world. All they see is the physical, all they see is what's before their face, and they don't have a higher divine given purpose assigned to them. So they live in what philosophers or people call imminent framework. Imminent means what is right in front of you. All they can see is today. All they really care about is what's going on, what they can touch, feel, and hold, and change, and control. That's the world that lost people live in, imminent, but not Christians. And this is what our teenagers, can I say it, and a lot of us are desperately missing. It's so obvious, it's so simple, but it's not something that impacts our daily lives. It's that we are in a transcendent framework. Ours is not a one-story house that only has the physical. We have in a two-story house where the human's on the bottom and divine on the top. And see, the divine overshadows and controls everything underneath it. We have a tra- because we have God. God is the framework that we need. It's his story that he's telling with our lives. And those two stories, we call it providence, intersect on a regular basis. And so we tell stories tonight of homes that God already had planned for us. And we talk about retirements that God put in the right time and place. And we talk about surgeries. I remember when I came here, I didn't take the job the first time I was called to come to faith. Six months later, I got called a second time. And I came out here. And when I came out here and took the job, and then Mackenzie was born a few months later, and I didn't know at the time that she would have genetic ear tumors and that were eating in, would eat into her brain if we didn't stop them. And the providence was the number one person, doctor, surgeon for this in America was at Children's Hospital in Philadelphia. So when I came, see, that was a divine providence of God. See, that is, see in the world, here's what they would say. Oh, that's a crazy coincidence, isn't it? You ever heard someone say, well, you are so lucky I go, you better not blaspheme, right? 
because God is in control. But see, you know why? We have a two-story house. And the, the divine overlaps into the human. It's not just luck or coincidence. It happens by God's great power and wisdom. See, so let me tell you this. Why does that matter? Why do we have to see life like that and that story like that? Here's what it means for our daily lives. Living in a two-story house means that there is a big story that your little life fits into. So what, Pastor Walker? Here's what it means. Ready? So therefore, nothing, and I repeat, nothing, absolutely nothing, is trivial in your life. None of it. Every act of obedience to God's word, no matter how small it seems, has significance in God's story. You look at Ruth. It was not an insignificant thing that she was faithful to her mother-in-law and loved her even when she was bitter and angry with God. She came to know God when Naomi was not an example of God. It was not a small thing that she chose. Orpah didn't, but she did. She, she could have gone back. She could have went with the younger person, Orpah. She could have been gone back to the familiar. She didn't. It was not an insignificant choice. And her life was completely different because it was not an insignificant choice when she got up one morning and said, I'm going to go and work for Naomi and I, and I'm going to glean in the fields according to the laws of God. That was not an in, that You say, well, of course you got... Oops, sorry. I couldn't hear. Thank you. She said, you, it's not an insignificant thing that she said, right, that I am going to go out and I'm poor. And you said, well, she had to go work in the fields. She wasn't going to eat if she didn't. Well, of course she did. But when she went out to the fields, whose field does she get into? Boaz. And he happens to be the kinsman redeemer that she's looking for. Was that insignificant? Absolutely not. How about choosing to love? Do you remember what Boaz said to her? Blessed be you. Why? Because you did not go after the younger men that you could have gone after. And even though Boaz was older, remember what he, he said? You, you, you chose to be, come after him and ask him to marry. See, she could have done a lot of things. But she didn't. And she made this choice to be, and then she made a choice to have, be his wife. And then to have a baby, which God had to give her the ability to do. Because she was barren for 10 years. You put all those things together, and they don't seem in and of themselves, most of them, major decisions in her life. But see, she had, listen, remember the chapter I told you? It was filled with five conversations between Boaz and Ruth back and forth. Do you think that that just happened by accident? You see, there are no miracles, there are no supernatural acts in all the book of Ruth. But some of those important things that happened in Scripture in order to bring Jesus the Messiah into the world happened in an ordinary situation of life. Now see, you and I, we're always looking for, oh God, can you do, and there's nothing wrong with asking for big things from a big God. God, do this, and do this, and God, and then we think God's not hardly doing anything unless it's something stupendous and supernatural to the point where we could never explain it, and I'm so grateful that those things still happen. But can I tell you how God normally works? You know how when you give your life to telling his story, how he normally works? In very daily, simple, ordinary ways. Little decisions that you make, little acts of obedience, little things that show that you have character and integrity and godliness, little devotion and commitment to him when someone else doesn't and you do. See, all of that works together that God uses it for his glory and your good. Believers, 
for us as Christians, all the events of life are connected to eternity. They are part of something bigger. Listen to this. Ruth's story points to David's story. The very last Hebrew word in the book of Ruth is David. You know why? Because she is an apologetic for how he came in, I told you, 10 generations later to become Israel's greatest king. So Ruth's story, see, her little decisions, loving Boaz, being godly, accepting God, following her mother-in-law, being married, doing all, see, all of that, that made it possible to point to David. And you know what David's life does? David's life points to Jesus. Read the genealogy of Jesus in the Christmas narrative, the infancy narrative in Matthew 1. You know how it starts? Most genealogies start with the very first ancestor all the way through, but this is how it starts in Matthew. Jesus, the son of Abraham, the son of David. Why? Why do you jump from Abraham to David? Because the lineage is Jewish with Abraham, but royalty through David. And they put those two names right up front. Even though they talk more about David later, he is the central person in the line. Why? Because the genealogy is to prove that Jesus has the right to rule because he is the true king. You know where that starts? Ruth. She too, as well as Tamar, are in the genealogy of Matthew chapter 1. Of Jesus. See, let me tell you this. Think of this tonight. If you're in the line of Jesus, can I say this? Their story is your story. Do you know that as God's family, adopted family, your story is in the Ruth story, in the David story, and in Jesus' story? That story is your story. It's my story. See, Ruth pointed to David. Let me ask you, who does your macro, your little micro story in God's macro, who does it point to? See, our problem is too often the answer to that question is, well, it points to me. (laughs) It points to me because I'm doing my thing. I've got talents and abilities and here's how I'm using them and I'm making a good living and I got a job and a career and most of the time the things that we do with our life, they're not bad things. They can be very good things and they may indeed in the end be what God wants but have we ever asked the question, am I doing in my life, is my life pointing to God and to his story? Am I using the talents and abilities he's given me? Are my children gonna use their talents Is it to become better and bigger in the world or tell a better and bigger story because they're in God's? You see, you never really know what the ripple effect of your life will do in the lives of others, do you? You really don't know. The little choices you make today to be pure and holy and teach your children to do so will have an effect on their children and their children and people in church who hear your testimony See, you just don't really know the ripple effect of your life. Listen to this. Ruth impacted Naomi, and then Naomi impacts Bethlehem. Ruth and Naomi both impact Boaz, who impacts David and all of Israel, and ultimately Jesus, and thus the world. Imagine that ripple effect. Some little Moabitess woman, foreigner, outside the people of God, comes to know the Savior, has him as a redeemer, and her life is changed, lives lives of in, really obscurity by the most part, but she not only becomes famous in Bethlehem, she becomes famous to the point where she's in the genealogy of Jesus, and through her, Jesus is born and ultimately changes the world. And by the way, you sit here tonight worshiping him because of it. 
That's the ripple effect. Now sometimes, see, we don't think that. We're just going to work to do our job, get a paycheck, and we don't see. You know the conversations you have? They're meaningful. You know the person that comes into your life today? They're not just someone that came in your door. They're someone that God may want you to influence by the conversations that you have because it all matters. It all matters. Do you remember the movie, now I'm dating myself, do you remember the Karate Kid? Remember that movie? I think his name was Daniel. That was the guy, right? Remember he, Mr. Miyagi was up there and he was teaching him and it looked like he was doing all this stuff and it's a waste of time. Remember wax wax on? Wax off. Remember that? Remember that? And he was going, he was so frustrated because he wanted to be this great karate kid and all this stuff. And, and all he was doing was this guy's labor out in his backyard, cleaning up his car, doing all the chores and stuff like that. And he thought it was a complete waste of time until what? Until he had to fight and was being attacked. And the moves that he learned saved his skin, right? It seemed like a complete waste of time, but it wasn't. It was profoundly important. Now see, you might think, oh, someone comes in the office and, oh, they're, they're, they're bothering my schedule. They interrupted me. You know what? I don't have time for you. And I, you know why? Because you can't see which story you're in. You think you just wax on and wax off. You think it doesn't matter. It matters, those people who come to your door. It matters the people that you see. Ruth teaches us, listen, that all those little ordinary everyday decisions, they matter, all of them, because we're in it and our lives are pointing to a bigger story that God has. There is no accident, only appointments in our lives. One of my favorite C.S. Lewis quotes, I'm going to give it to you. You may have heard it before, but I love it. C.S. Lewis said, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen. Listen to this. Not only because I see it, but because by it, I see everything else. Do you hear what he's saying? He says, like when the sun rises, I I know it's true. I believe it. Why? Because I can see the sun. But you know what else I believe it? Because by the sun, I see everything else. See, when you put your life... This is Christianity. It's entering the macro story of God by redemption in Christ Jesus. And when you're redeemed, here's what happens. You believe it's true. Not only because Jesus is in your life, but because of by Jesus, I see everything else. See, that's the test of whether what story you're living in. Do you do that? Do you see the people God brings into the conversation? Do you know that God put you in your neighborhood I was thinking about that with Jim and Emmy. You know, he's put him in that neighborhood. Why? Because there are people there to reach the gospel. See, that's why God, do you know that God put you at the job you have in the cubicle you have and, and he put you next to those people with the boss that you have that you may not think that was the greatest choice by God, but it's still there. See, God put you in those places. God put you in the, you know why? Because you're in a story. A story way bigger than the one that you're writing with your own pen. And so, redeemers, redemption, you know what? We're going to talk the last few minutes. You know, or actually, we're not. Well, you know what redemption is? Redemption is God bringing you into his story. Now, let me just close a couple things about the redeemer. The redeemer had to have two things. He had to be a blood relative, and he had to be willing to pay the sacrifice. If you read chapter four, you'll find that out. You saw the video. There was a guy that was a closer redeemer, but because... If he married Moab, uh, Ruth, his children wouldn't get the land. It would go to her son, right? So he didn't want to do it. He didn't want to wreck, and here's the word, he didn't want to impair his children's 
inheritance. In other words, you know what he did? It was too risky. He didn't want to pay the price. That's not our Redeemer. That's not Jesus. Jesus was willing to pay the price. And we don't have time, but in John 10, look them up for yourself. 11, 15, 17, and 18. There's a little phrase in all four verses, and here it is what it says. And he, Jesus, meaning Jesus, he laid down his life. See, Jesus wasn't coerced to be our Redeemer. He wasn't forced. He wasn't manipulated. God the Father didn't have to twist his arm, and Jesus finally relented and said, okay. No, he laid down his own life. When Jesus says in verse, no one takes my life from me. I give it willingly. See, he was willing to pay the cost. He was willing to do the sacrifice. John 15, 13, a couple chapters later, it goes on to say, greater love has no man than this that he lays down his life, same phrase, lays down his life for his friends. It is the greatest love. It is, see, the first Redeemer guy, by the way, whose name doesn't even get recorded. See, he didn't get his name recorded. You know why? He didn't have the sacrificial love. Boaz did, and by the way, technically in the law, he didn't have to have uh, Ruth and marry her because she was a Moabite, she was a foreigner, and if you're outside of Israel, you didn't have to do it for him, but he did. Is that not a picture of Jesus including Jews and Gentiles in his sacrificial love and redemption? It certainly is. But you know what? Listen to this. This isn't just about Jesus redeeming and his love. Because if you read the rest of the New Testament, you'll find what 1 John 3.16, the other 3.16 in John, right? Jesus says what? You know that God loves you. Why? Because Jesus laid down his life for you and you ought to also, same phrase, Lay down your life for the brethren. Do you know tonight as you leave here and think about the incredible story of how Boaz was willing to risk and sacrifice for her everything and Jesus, the perfect redeemer, laid down his life. Can I tell you this? That's what you're supposed to do and me for each other. That's the story. We're supposed to have a redeemer kind of sacrificial love that we're willing to do all that for other people. And by the way, in the text, read the next couple of verses after 1 John three sixteen. It wasn't some sort of lay down your life and really be a martyr. You know what it was? Seeing people with physical needs and meeting them. See, it's not these extraordinary, miraculous, oh, I'm burned at the stake. You know what it is? No, it's feeding someone a stake. Right? That's what it really was. And it's simple, everyday, ordinary things that we demonstrate that we have a Redeemer kind of love. And lastly, can I say quickly, the Redeemer not only had to be a blood relative, but they had to pay the price. And now the price, I've talked about in general, let me say one last thing. It was very specific in the Old Testament. Abraham, God said, I would know Isaac's your firstborn, but I want you to sacrifice him to me. I want you to kill him. And the firstborn had to die. But God allowed in his mercy and grace a, a ram a lamb to be caught in the thicket. And God allowed a sacrifice for his firstborn son to take his substitutionary place. The Exodus was the Passover, and God was going to strike down the firstborn. It was not only the firstborn of the Israelites, but it was also the firstborn of the Egyptians. They were no different. They were all firstborn were going to die. God said, if you want the angel of death to pass over you, the blood of the lamb has to be put on the doors and the lintels of your home. And see, the Egyptians, by and large, didn't do that, but the Israelites did. But here it is. The firstborn had to die, and the only thing would keep the firstborn from dying was a lamb being substitute, given their life, the lamb was in their place. You know, each Israelite in Israel, 
on the fir- when their baby boy, their firstborn, was a month old, they had to go to the temple, Exodus 13, and they had to pay a tax. There was an ongoing tax. If you read Numbers 3, 44 through 51, every, they had to pay five shekels. You know why? Because in the Old Testament, the firstborn price was never fully paid for redemption. So on and on throughout, they even have it down to 1,357 shekels. They have it counted all down. And you had to bring your son and the firstborn and you had to give the five shekels. You know why? Because in the Old Testament, the redemption was never really finished until Jesus came. God sent forth his son, made of a woman, and redeemed us out from under the law that we might be able to be the adopted sons. Isn't he a great redeemer? Isn't he? And Paul says, with that kind of love, and I'll close, he said, that may the love of God compel me that I would no longer live for myself. Can I say it this way? That I would no longer just live in my story, but the story of his glory. He goes on to say, that I would no longer live for myself, but for him who died for me and was raised on the third day. That's the story. Here's the question again. Whose story are you living in tonight? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these overview messages of the book of Ruth. Thank you for telling us this story. Truly, Father, as we look at Ruth, it doesn't matter what our past has been. It doesn't matter who we used to be or where we came from. It really doesn't matter what our ethnicity was and how people accepted us or not accepted us. What matters is, is that we know you. And we're thankful, God, that you can take anyone and adopt them into your story. Lord, that story we have to come more and more familiar with and what that story is like and how Jesus tells it and how God works it through history because that's the only way that we'll ever find out how we can live in it every day. Help us by your grace and for your glory every day to read your book, to know what that story is all about in its framework and all of its pieces so that we can have our lives, our little lives fit in your big story that you might get the glory and the world might get the gospel. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. You are dismissed.